The topic for this weekend is meditation, how to transform ourselves. It's quite clear from that title that meditation is a method for working on ourselves. And so that means seriously dealing with our situation, with the quality of our lives, and the quality of our lives as it is affected by our personality and our moods, which of course will be affected by our living situation, our economic situation, people that we live with, our friends, and so on. But if we have some experience in life, then we realize that despite changes in external things like work, economics, friends, and so on, that if our attitudes, our state of mind is not changed, problems that we have just recur. I'm talking about things like getting angry, feeling insecure, feeling frustrated, being selfish, being greedy. All these things are not going to really change just by changing our external circumstances. And so in order to bring about real change in the quality of our lives, we need to work on ourselves, work on our minds. And we're not just talking about our intellectual qualities, like, for instance, our intelligence, like, for instance, our intelligence, Например, наш ум, or even such things as uh, having difficulty concentrating, uh, laziness, these type of things. Not only that, these are important to work on, but deeper in terms of emotional situation, even deeper, things like insecurity and confusion about life itself. And meditation is something that we find in many, many different systems, not only Buddhist. And if we look at the meaning that it has in the Buddhist context, we're talking about actualizing a positive state of mind through a method of repetition. And so what we are doing is familiarizing ourselves with a positive state of mind by generating it. So it's a type of training similar to what we do with our bodies when we have athletic training or when we train to play a musical instrument. We have to repeat certain exercises over and over again. And although in the beginning it might seem very artificial and forced, eventually with enough familiarity it becomes just a natural part of ourselves. So just because something is generated new doesn't mean that there's something inappropriate with it. Some new state of mind, when we train to do something new, we shouldn't think, oh, this is uh, not natural. A lot of people think, oh, just be natural. This is what would be best and don't artificially try to create anything. But if we remained in a natural state, we would continue to go to the toilet in our pants. Uh, so we trained in various methods. We don't still crawl on the floor. We learned how to walk. We practiced it. And this is perfectly fine so that now it is natural to us. So 
you can't use that argument that, well, I should just be natural and then everything will be perfect. Because uh, being natural often means when I lose my temper, I just hit the baby when the baby is crying. That's not really what we want to do. When the baby is crying, to just hit it, to shut up. We might feel like that in the middle of the night when the baby wakes us up, or especially if it's the baby upstairs that is not our own. Nevertheless, we know that that's not the appropriate way to act, even though that might naturally be the first thought that comes to our mind. Oh, no, shut up, let me sleep. Not again. So we have meditation, and it uh, plays a very important role in the study and practice of Buddhism. But some people make a uh, big mistake in thinking that study and meditation practice are two separate things, whereas this is not at all the uh, teachings of the Buddha. In order to develop more beneficial habits, we have to study about what they are. We have to learn. Study means to learn something. And learning, then, is not an end in itself. We have to integrate it and make it part of ourselves, which is what the meditation does. But just as we cannot digest something unless we eat it, similarly, if we don't put in teachings into our minds, then we can't digest them through meditation. We have to eat the teachings. And so that is what the studying is like. It's like eating and the meditation is like digesting. And we do, we need both. You can't just eat and then spit it out. That doesn't help us. You have to swallow and digest in order to benefit from the food. So, how do we begin meditating? I was asked to teach this weekend on a practical level and not speak too much about complicated theory. And so I will try to do that. Whether I'm successful or not, I don't know. So, the practice of meditation, as I explained last night for those who were there, is uh, step three of a three-part practice. And this three-part practice is something that we find in general in all Indian systems. It appears in the Upanishads, Hindu tradition, as well as the Buddhist tradition. I think that many people who study Buddhism don't appreciate really the fact that most of the methods used in Buddhism are shared in common by various other Indian systems, like various Hindu schools. But what is uh, unique to Buddhism is the contents, what the aim is, what the understanding of reality is, what the motivation is. The methods are something which are commonly available in Indian thought. And so when we are practicing meditation, if we are practicing it in the Buddhist context, then we need to use it for digesting the Buddhist teachings. Now, the method, this common method, has three parts, and the meditation is the part number three. And these three parts are listening, thinking, pondering, and meditating. So why is it called listening or hearing? Listen, I think, is a better word, because it means that you pay more attention. You hear the noise in the uh, street, 
That's not what we're talking. We're talking about really paying attention and listening. And it's called listening for several reasons. The first is that at the time of the Buddha, none of the teachings were written down. So the only way that you could learn them was to listen to somebody explaining them. You couldn't read them. Nowadays, of course, we can read the teachings. So is there any benefit to actually listening to them? Well, why don't we think about that for a moment? We want to make this a little bit of a practice thing, a little bit of an interactive, or at least an active on your side process. So think, why would it be more beneficial to listen to the teachings rather than reading them? Is there any benefit? Is one more helpful than the other? And if so, why? Okay, so tell me, is there a benefit of listening to the teachings rather than reading them in a book or on the Internet? Right, direct contact with the teacher. Yes. There's also your wish for us to understand that teaching. Right, the teacher has the wish for the students to understand but it's not just sitting here and wishing and praying that you understand from my side as the teacher, but it is a live situation, and so I am looking at you, and if you are puzzled or give some indication that you don't understand, I make more of an effort to explain as the teacher. And what is the benefit of contact in addition to that with the teacher? What about if you have questions? You ask questions to a book or an audio tape? No, you can't. Now, if you lose your attention while reading, you can, of course, go back, can't you? The same thing with an audio recording. You can rewind. With a teaching, a live teaching, that's not so easy because then it's a little bit embarrassing. You have to ask, could you repeat that? I wasn't paying attention. And that becomes very embarrassing if you are in a large group of people. You can't do that. So there are certain disadvantages as well, aren't there? You might be sitting in the back and not hear so well. It might be extremely hot like this room is, and so you get sleepy. But that means you have to put in more effort, doesn't it? And needing to put in more effort is really a quality that needs to be cultivated in the Buddhist teachings. Learning and practicing Buddhism is not a passive method. It needs to be something very active on the part of the student. We are working on ourselves, trying to learn to think for ourselves and to be able to develop good qualities in our personality. And so the instructions for a teacher are that you shouldn't make it too easy for the student. It's very interesting, actually. It's uh, said that you should not explain things as a teacher very clearly the first time. For some teachers, like myself, that's very difficult because I like to be very clear, at least what's clear to me. But if I really followed the instructions of my own teacher who taught me how to teach, when I was his translator, Sir Kong Rinpoche, he very consciously taught me how to teach. He said that to me. And he said, don't explain clearly in the beginning, 
because what you want is to separate out those who are really interested from those who are just there because of some other reason, some not very deep reason. And those who are really interested will ask more. And that's important, that the student develops their own strong wish to learn more, to get a clearer explanation. And so when a student complains and says, oh, the teacher wasn't clear, and uh, I don't want to go to that teacher, then you have to examine what was the quality of that teacher. Is the teacher really unqualified and doesn't know how to explain clearly? There are many who are like that. Or is the teacher not giving you all the details at once, doing that on purpose in order to encourage you to develop your perseverance and patience to ask for more? And in terms of listening, it's all intended for the second step, which is to think about the teachings, to try to understand them. And so, just as I did now with this particular question of, is there some benefit to listening to the teachings rather than just reading it, it's not so helpful for me as a teacher to just instantly give you the answer. But what is uh, more helpful is to give you the opportunity to think about it first, because that develops within you the quality of examining the teachings. And this is very important to examine them to see, does it make sense to make an effort to try to understand and to see, what do I think about this? And then to get some feedback is that correct or not so correct? Now, of course, that's difficult in a large group, and particularly difficult when there is a teacher who only comes once a year. But I'm talking about what would be ideal <laughs> in many centers that uh, is not possible, and you have to rely on reading or listening to audio tapes, and we should be very happy that those are available because we can learn a great deal from them. However, we need to know how to learn from them. And we don't just read it like some novel or something that you can just read on the toilet. Right? That's not the type of reading that Buddhist material should be. But it needs to be read in a respectful state of mind, like when we come to a teachings, then we sit respectfully, we don't just shout and get up and do strange things, and we would go slowly and try to think about each point, and what's very helpful in centers is to get together with other people who are interested in this and read it together, and then discuss each point, what do you think about this, what do you think about that, how do you understand it? Because uh, although it might not be with a teacher, there will be some people who have more experience and some people will understand one thing more easily and other people will understand other things more easily. And it becomes much more of a live situation. And making it a live situation, interacting with others is very helpful. Otherwise, often it just stays very intellectual and not really brought together with life. Working with other people and interacting in terms of the uh, teachings 
brings it much more to life. But you have to be serious about it. Now, serious about it doesn't mean that you sit there stiffly and nobody ever smiles or uh, relaxes. It certainly is not the Buddhist way. If you uh, ever have the opportunity to watch the Tibetan monks debating, there's a tremendous amount of laughter that goes on with it, but it's very serious as well. They're not talking about football. They're talking about the Dharma teachings, but they are relaxed about it so they can laugh when something is funny or when somebody says something silly, you know, make a, a silly mistake or whatever. For uh, some Western people, that's quite difficult to do, but it's something that I think we definitely need to learn from our Tibetan friends. The relaxed with the teachings and nevertheless to be serious about it. That is an indication of how you integrate the teachings into your life, after all. But one of the basic purposes of the teachings is to be happier. Если мы будем vase, a pitcher of water. Well, many of you have perhaps heard this already, but it never hurts to hear it again. We need to be not a vase that's upside down. If it's upside down, nothing will go in. That means we have to have an open mind, right? Not this attitude that I know everything and nobody can tell me anything. And we uh, have to be sure that we're not like a dirty vase, which means that We have so many preconceptions before that it confuses us. So one thing that we really have to avoid when listening to the Buddhist teachings is comparing it with some other system. Right? Or you hear something, you say, well, isn't that just like in Hinduism it says this, or Taoism it says that, and so on. One of my teachers used to really point this out as a fault of Western people. He said, if you are trying to compare two things neither of which you really understand. And so it makes no sense. All you have is confusion. The only time that a comparison of two systems is worthwhile is when you really have a good understanding of both. But if you don't understand the Buddhist teachings, first you have to put aside any thought of, is it like this or is it like that? People can just listen to the teachings by themselves. Otherwise, we mix together what we understand with things from other teachings that, first, we don't understand really well, and second, they're not uh, relevant. And then the third fault, like the vase, is that we have to avoid is having a hole in the bottom, which means not remembering, not retaining what we learn. And so, for a lot of people, it's helpful to take notes. Now, for some people, that's easy to do. For other people, you lose concentration. And even if we take notes, often we never look at them again. So what's the benefit? Or we can record the teachings and listen to them again. But that takes a lot of time, doesn't it? And there might not be uh, so much essence in that. You know, the essential points might be very brief, but you might have to listen for a whole hour in order to get it. 
And so unless we have a really good memory, it's good to take at least some notes. And then we have to review them, look at them again, and try to learn them. Now, it's very interesting if we look at our psychology in the West. Unless we are given a test, an examination, usually we don't learn something. You know, we learn it in order to pass the exam. And if we can cheat in order to pass the exam, why not cheat? That's easier. And anyway, then I might get a better mark. Or maybe I give the teacher some money, bribe the teacher, and then I get a better mark. Well, that doesn't work here. That's not the point to pass an examination and get a good grade. And that's not the point to get the uh, approval of the teacher when the teacher pats us on the head and like a dog we wag our tail. But the whole point is that we are trying to improve ourselves and anything that Buddha taught, if we really have faith in the Buddha, was taught for the benefit of others. It didn't just teach something stupid for no reason at all. And if we don't understand what was Buddha's purpose in teaching this, then we have to learn and find out. We assume, we presume that Buddha had a purpose in teaching this, yes, and it was to benefit others. And as uh, the great Indian Buddhist master Atisha said, it's not that this is to benefit some other person over there, but it's irrelevant to me. We need to think of it in terms of this is to benefit me. Right? That other person has anger. I don't have anger. That's not the way we need to think. It says that the mirror of the Dharma should face yourself, not face outside. So how can this benefit me? Maybe it might not benefit me now. Maybe it's for some more advanced stage. But we have to think in terms of how can this possibly be relevant to me? And we might come to the conclusion that I don't understand. I don't know how this could benefit me. But rather than concluding that therefore it is stupid, I will assume that it is of some benefit and I will be open-minded to eventually learn how it will be of benefit. With each of these three steps, listening, thinking, and meditating, there is a certain type of discriminating awareness that we develop. Right, discriminating awareness, what does that mean? It's often translated as wisdom, but that's such a vague word, it doesn't mean anything. We have a mental factor called distinguishing, in which we can distinguish one thing from another thing. We might not know what it is, but we can distinguish the colored shapes of this face from the colored shapes of the wall and put it together into one object. I can distinguish that. Even a worm can distinguish that. So that functions all the time, otherwise we couldn't function in life. We have to be able to distinguish something from the background or something from something else. And discriminating awareness is the mental factor that adds certainty to that, right? So now we are definite that something is this and not that. So here, with thinking, the type of discriminating awareness that we have is that we are definite that this is a teaching of the Buddha, and this is a correct teaching. And so that's important. We need to be convinced that this is the correct teaching. Otherwise, if it's something which is incorrect, then later on we're going to have problems, obviously. And if we're not sure, was this correct or not, then while we're trying to practice, we will be filled with doubts. So before we go any further with the Buddhist practice, 
we have to be sure that I get correct information. And we need to be very convinced. Then we have confidence. And then you develop the state of mind of confidence that this is correct, what I'm trying to practice. I got the teachings correctly. And so there are many methods to check whether or not it's correct. In Tantra, it's very interesting. You know, we have these mantras. Mantra are certain syllables and Sanskrit words that are uh, repeated for many, many different purposes. There's no need to go into that now. But there is a certain ritual ceremony that's done with the mantras in which you uh, have a, a picture that's made of the Sanskrit alphabet with the vowels and the consonants separately, and they are arranged in rows and columns. And then it says, very specifically, the first syllable is the consonant, which is in the second column, the fourth row. And the vowel is the fourth vowel. And it specifies like that every letter of the mantra. So at the end, we can be very confident that we got the mantra correctly. So like that, it's very important that we have confidence that this is correct. This is not somebody made a mistake. And we need to check the teachings. One of the criteria that a great Indian Buddhist master, Dharmakirti, said for testing whether something is really the teaching of the Buddha was, does this fit in with the basic teachings of the Buddha? Is it consistent? That means that we have to learn quite a bit about the Buddhist teachings in order to first be able to see what the general idea of the Buddhist teachings are. And that means being open-minded, not saying after listening to one lecture, now I know everything and that's it. Now I'm going to go and sit like a great Mahasiddha or something like that. So we have this, this certainty now that the teachings that I received are correct. They are the authentic teachings. And that means that the source of the teachings was correct. We checked. We checked the teacher. Does the teacher know what they're talking about? How is the teacher trained? And how is the character of the teacher? If the teacher is somebody who's uh, very angry and greedy and their personality is very, very, what should we say, disturbed, then obviously they haven't really integrated the teachings very well. Very suspicious. One of the most important functions of a Buddhist teacher is to inspire us by their example. Right? The function of the teacher is not just to give us information. That's why, as you said, the direct contact is important in order to receive inspiration. Well, the teacher needs to be a living example of what they're teaching, which means that they are motivated just to help others, not to be famous or to get a lot of power or money or whatever. And they know the teachings, and they have actualized them in themselves, and they're able to explain them. So there are many, many qualities of the uh, teacher. It's interesting in one text by the great Tibetan master, Tsongkhapa, although there are many, many lists of qualifications of the teacher, the ones that he points out are really very important. He says the teacher needs to know what are the states of mind that we need to develop and which are the ones that we need to get rid of and not add anything that shouldn't be there and not leave anything out and know how to 
what is the graded order for developing these qualities and to be able to adopt that to each student. Then the teacher is really a good teacher. Okay, so teacher has to be authentic. We check that. The same thing if we're just relying on a book. That the book has to be from an authentic author or authentic translator. There are a lot of translations and a lot of books which are not very accurate. Now, this is very difficult to judge, especially for newcomers, and unfortunately it's going to become more difficult in the future because of the Internet. The Internet is a wonderful media, but if you look up Buddhism in Google and you get how many millions of websites, and every year there's more. So there's so much information. How do we differentiate what is authentic and what is garbage? Because, unfortunately, the majority of it is garbage. And, uh, you know, some people might recommend this site or that site, but are they reliable? And anyone who uh, runs a large website knows that there are methods for getting your website higher up on the list of Google. And so by using these tricks, even though your website might be absolute garbage, you can come out number one, the first thing in Google. And so I don't know really what to say in terms of how to overcome that problem. We have to consult other people who we have confidence in and get enough experience with the uh, teachings to know how to weed out what is garbage and what's not. And uh, as I said, that's not an easy task, and it's just becoming more and more difficult, and that's, that's unfortunate. But the Internet is a wonderful tool, and this is the reality. So we're going to have to learn somehow to uh, weave our way through all this information. And that's why the teacher becomes even more important, because the teacher can direct our reading. And as Tsongkhapa said, the teacher needs to know what is the correct order for studying and practicing. Because if you just go to the Internet, you don't know where to begin. So with my website, for example, I uh, try versionarchives.com to at least indicate level one, level two, level three, to give some sort of order. But these are things that need to be developed more and more. And as a student of Buddhism, I think we at least need to be sensitive to what are all the problems associated just with this first step of listening to the teachings. In other words, learning what they are and having confidence that this is correct and this is where I would start. So we have these instructions of how to listen. And then there's also a further instruction concerning how we listen, which is that we need to regard ourselves as uh, a sick person and the uh, Buddha and the teachers as doctors and the Dharma teachings as the medicine and the other members of the community and we're not just talking about anybody who walks in the door of a Dharma center but those who are highly realized they're like the nurses to help us. In other words, we need to enter into the practice of Buddhism, practice of meditation with the recognition that I have problems. It's like a sickness, which is my selfishness or my anger or whatever it might be. 
and this is something that I want to get cured of, and Buddha is uh, the supreme doctor, and I'm going to get the medicine and not just get it and forget about it, and not just get it and let it fall out of my pocket, but I'm going to take it and eat it. And I will follow the instructions and take it properly, not swallow a whole bottle at once. Right? It's like taking antibiotics. You have to take it at a certain time and a certain number, and it's no good if you stop in the middle or uh, forget it for a day. So that's one instruction of viewing this like a medical situation. And another instruction is to imagine when we are receiving teachings that we are in a pure land and the teacher is a Buddha and we are receiving the teachings, uh, the pure teachings of the Buddha. Now, does that mean that the teacher really is a Buddha? Doesn't no, of course not. What is being referred to here is to have a feeling of respect for what we're doing and for ourselves and for the teacher and the teachings. Because what we're doing is something which is serious. It's affecting our lives. But serious doesn't mean a horrible look on our face. And we are learning the teachings of Buddha. So this is the source. And this is a pure land that we are sitting in here, which means that we don't complain about how hot it is in this room, but uh, rather we try to ignore that fact and just listen with an open mind. So these are the instructions about listening. So at the end, as I say, we have confidence that these are the teachings. It is correct. And we don't necessarily understand them. So what is the way of relating to the teachings? Now, in the Buddhist teachings, it talks about different ways of knowing something. And one way of knowing something is called presumption. We presume or assume that it's true. I don't understand what this actually means. And I don't really understand what the benefit of this might be but I will presume that it is true, what Buddha taught, and I will presume that it is of benefit. Now, that doesn't mean blind faith. What that means is that I will give it, we say in English, the benefit of the doubt. It that means that I will, for the time being, assume that this is true, and then I will examine it more carefully. Buddha said very strongly, Examine my teachings as if you were buying gold. Don't just believe because of your faith in me. But to be able to do that, that means to have an open mind to be able to examine it. But to be able to do that, that means to have an open mind to be able to examine it. And with that open mind, and without mixing it with other things, then I presume that there must be some benefit to this, you know, but it wouldn't teach something stupid, and now I'm going to examine it and see what it means. Does it make sense? Does it not make sense? And adopt what is beneficial. So, this is the way that we need to listen. And I'll give an example of what I'm talking about here. with presumption. Concerning presumption. Which is, uh, for instance, past and future lives which is, uh, for instance, past and future lives. Now, past and future lives, I was raised in a typical Western fashion, and I certainly didn't believe in them. 
When I first started studying Buddhism, I did not believe in past and future lives. Now, this is alien to most people's ways of thinking, and if they think anything of future lives, they think of an afterlife, like in Christianity, that you go to heaven or hell. I think that's quite typical of most Europeans and Americans, Western people who approach Buddhism. But there it is, in all the Buddhist teachings, past and future lives, beginningless mind, etc., etc. Everybody has been my mother in a previous life. All these teachings. So you can't just throw it out the window. And so the way that I approached this in the beginning was to say, okay, I will assume that this is correct, that this is true. I don't understand it. I'm not going to make excuses about it and just put it in the side here under the table and not consider it like a lot of Westerners do about the Buddhist teachings concerning the hells. This is just too nasty that, well, no, I I don't want to deal with that. So we just forget about that. It's part of the teachings. And what I did, what I think is the correct way of approaching it, is saying that I will assume for the moment that this is correct and then see what follows from accepting this. What are the things that are built on this basis? And if what is built on this basis is beneficial, then maybe that basis, the whole teaching on rebirth, actually is correct. And actually, if I don't understand what the Buddhist teachings are concerning what is it that's reborn, then I really can't understand rebirth at all. So I'm going to have to really understand things on a much deeper level in order to really understand the Buddhist teaching on rebirth. And only if I understand that can I start to understand these other realms of ghosts and hells and so on. If I don't understand the nature of the mind, I can't possibly understand what we're talking about here. So that's important, not to just reject part of the teachings immediately because I don't understand it and it's just too strange. So this is what it means to have an open mind and to have this discriminating awareness that, yes, this is what Buddha taught. Buddha taught about rebirth. Sorry, I may not like it, but there it is, and I'm going to have to deal with it if I want to go deeper in Buddhism. So that's the first step, and it's a step that is important not to skip. Okay, now, that perhaps is enough for this evening, and then tomorrow we'll start with the thinking process, and then how do you actually think about the teachings, and then how do you actually meditate. And hopefully I won't just talk like I did this evening, but also to be a little bit more active from your side. Okay, so if you have any questions. The question is, when some practitioner is in deep meditation, then his brain waves. Which characteristic do it have? Is it the same as a person uh, has when he or she is active in the the usual life, or is it the same as uh, uh, when he or she is sleeping, and so on? Well, there have been a number of scientific research projects concerning that, in which they actually measure the brain waves of meditators doing different types of meditation. And I must confess that I have not kept uh, up to date on all the results of that, but there's a lot of literature about it. I think one of the things that they found, if I remember correctly, was, uh, I mean, not only is it not our ordinary 
usual uh, state of mind, and it's certainly not like when we're asleep, but that through meditation practices, it was possible to make more and more connections, actual neuron connections between the right and left hemispheres. So, I mean, they found that actually you can, through meditation, affect the neural pathways of the brain. But we're not talking about just ordinary people that maybe uh, meditate with a lot of mental wandering an hour a week. We're talking about really serious, uh, deep practitioners, but they have found that they definitely are able to uh, make changes in the, the uh, chemistry and the wiring of the brain. Okay. Yes. Well, I have a question. You already mentioned that common mistake for Western people when they're trying to compare to some parts of Buddhist teaching they think they understand while they don't with some other parts of Indian Hinduistic teachings or something like that. But Which they also don't understand. Yeah, of course. But <laughs> sometimes we can uh, try to compare different parts of different Buddhist teachings. For example, like Mahamudra and Dzogchen. Because sometimes when you read about first and the second, of course I'm very far from understanding that deeply, mm. but sometimes you think that they're speaking about the same way, and what do you think, how, how wrong is that for Western people who are not mm. very experienced to compare such things, and to believe that the Mahamudra teachers were saying about the same thing as Dzogchen teachers when they were writing about mm. Let me repeat it in English for the recording saying that we mentioned the uh, problem that uh, many Western people have of listening to some teachings on Buddhism, not understanding it, and then comparing it with some other Asian philosophical system, which they also don't really understand. And is there that similar problem within the Buddhist teachings when we hear some teachings about Mahamudra, for example, and start to compare it with teachings on Dzogchen, neither of which we have very much of a deep understanding. So... I think that there is a problem here. Mahamudra and Dzogchen may be similar in certain respects, but they are actually quite different practices, quite different teachings. One of the problems is that often they are explained in a very superficial way, not in a very deep way. And when learned about in a superficial manner, of course, they sound quite similar. But one thing which is usually not mentioned is that both Mahamudra and Dzogchen are very advanced teachings, not at all for beginners, and they are very, very difficult practices. Recognize the nature of the mind. We don't even know what mind is, let alone what the nature of the mind is. We can't even concentrate, let alone examine the mind. Another problem is that many of the teachers of Mahamudra and Dzogchen are uh, masters of both systems, and they don't necessarily separate them very well. Very clearly, I should say. But if we look at the texts, Hama, not quite sure of the name of the teacher, but there was one great master that several centuries ago who uh, taught how to put the practices of Mahamudra and Dzogchen together. And in his explanation, we practice the Mahamudra practices up to a certain point, which is quite advanced, and then the final stages from that point to enlightenment are using the Dzogchen method. So that's how he put them together, and that seems to be the practical way in which it's actually done. But really, it is going to be much more beneficial that when we listen to Mahamudra teachings, we just try to fit it with the other Mahamudra teachings, and when we listen to Dzogchen teachings, try to fit it with the other Dzogchen teachings, and don't be satisfied with just staying on the superficial level. 
And if anybody tells you that it's easy, this is the easy, speedy path, be suspicious. They're not easy. Yes. As for the question on transmitting the teaching, how do you think uh, nowadays what form of the transmission of the teachings is the most appropriate? What could you advise on this? That's not a very easy question. I was uh, recently, about a month ago, in Dharamsala, and this was at the end of a conference of translators, Dharma translators, and the purpose of the conference was to organize a 100-year project for translating the Kangyur and the Tengyur, the Buddhist scriptures, into all major languages. We'll be fortunate if it's finished in 100 years, but at least it's started now. This is something that large group of translators around the world will work on. And although there is not an oral transmission of the Tengyur, which is the uh, words, uh, the writings of the Indian masters, the Indian Buddhist masters, there is the oral transmission of the Kangyur, which are the uh, words of the Buddha. Because when we talk about transmission, I mean, that's very specific in the uh, Buddhist terminology, which that's called Lung in Tibetan, in which somebody who has the lineage reads the text out to you, and you listen to it, digest it that way. So the question was asked to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, in order to translate the Kangyur, do we need the oral transmission of the Kangyur? Only the Kangyur has the oral transmission. Well, they asked in general. The people didn't even know that there wasn't the transmission lineage of most of the Tengyur. Only a few texts in the Tengyur have the oral transmission. The people who asked the question just asked in general. So first His Holiness pointed out, well, for a lot of the Tengyur, there isn't even an oral transmission, so it's irrelevant. And then he said, what's most important is the motivation. If you have the correct motivation, then it doesn't matter whether you have the oral transmission or not. But just the oral transmission without the correct motivation is useless. Now, of course, one could understand that to mean that you need to have both. And some of the translators understood it that way, that you need both the transmission and the correct motivation. But what His Holiness was meaning, I think, is that if you receive it, fine, but if not, it's really not necessary. Because also, bear in mind that the oral transmission of the whole Kangyur, for somebody who reads it out loud, we're talking about 100 volumes of about 1,000 pages each, they read it at absolute top speed, so it's almost impossible to differentiate any of the words in it, takes about three months of the whole day, each day, and your commitment in order to receive it is that you never fall asleep during the transmission. If you fall asleep during the transmission, you did not receive the transmission. So how many people really receive it? It is highly boring. So (laughs) then the question is, well, what is an oral transmission? Actually, I have a whole big article on my website about that. But uh, what you have to remember is that how did the tradition begin? And it began because the teachings were not written down. And the only way you could learn the teachings was to hear them, to get the oral transmission. That was the only way you could receive them. And there wasn't the custom to write it down, so it had to be repeated often so that you remembered it. And they memorized it. That was the only way. So it had a very purposeful 
reason in the early days. It was necessary. Nowadays it's written, so that original purpose is not necessary. Does the teacher need to understand the teaching in order to give the transmission? I thought that was the case. I thought that the teacher had to understand it. But I was wrong, because my teacher, the old Serkin Rinpoche, had a very special oral transmission of a certain teaching from his father, who was a great master, a great teacher. And I received that oral transmission. And when the reincarnation, the young Serkin Rinpoche, was old enough, he wanted to get that oral transmission. And there was nobody left who had the oral transmission of that except me. And so he wanted that oral transmission from me, and I told him, I've never studied the text. I have no idea what it means. It's the most advanced, difficult, philosophical text of Tsongkhapa, and it's a special transmission of it, not the usual one. So I asked His Holiness the Dalai Lama, can I give this oral transmission to Sarkaribache? He wants it. There's nobody else that has it. Even the Dalai Lama didn't have it. And I explained, I haven't even read the book. I haven't studied it. And his holiness said, yes, give it to him. So that completely shattered all my <laughs> preconceptions about what an oral transmission was. And so, really, we have to understand it's not some magic power that's transmitted, you know, from one person to another. It's certainly not that. But rather, it's just a certain confidence of continuity. And it's not that the teacher is transmitting some understanding to the student either. But it's just sort of a confidence that, okay, there is a tradition that does have a source that has gone from one generation to another. I think that's about all. But in the case of the Tengur, you know, the works of the great Indian masters, I think we can be fairly confident that these are authentic, even without the oral transmission. Now, in some cases, in Tantra, the oral transmission is also, in a sense, giving permission to practice but even that's questionable because these oral transmissions are given to groups of a thousand people. So how do you know that everybody is ready? Where it becomes particularly useful, though, is in the oral transmission of a mantra because you repeat it from the teacher, and so you know how it's pronounced. Okay, one last question, and that's all. I'm sorry, I have the bad habit of answering too long. The question is, when Alex Berzin transmitted this teaching to Sanshap Sarkong Rinpoche, did Alex Berzin improve, <laughs> improve his understanding of this teaching? Yes, because I read the text and not only read it, but I practiced reading it out loud many times so that I could read it out loud in a reasonable amount of time in Tibetan and read it out loud in a fluent way. So the conclusion is that the oral transmission is an opportunity for teacher to improve his or her understanding of teaching. Correct. But it was interesting. I went to India specially to give this uh, transmission to uh, the young Rinpoche, and he said, fine, the only time that I have during the day to give it is in the morning, I think we started at 5.30, from 5.30 to 6.30, and then I did it for several days in a row, because it took about five days to do. It was a very good experience, very good training for me too, and it certainly made for even stronger connection with the old Rinpoche and the new Rinpoche. So let's uh, end here with the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this, 
may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for reaching enlightenment for the benefit of all.